Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, it's 2011. Will is 22, heartbroken and taking on America. A small town boy ready to see the world before coming home to Melbourne a better, more interesting version of himself, or he hopes so. But he gets caught up with a few wild animals along the way. The hero's journey, as old as stories themselves, is his narrative where he heads to the USA with a vow to say yes to everything, jumping headfirst into hedonism and extravagance in New York, guided by his brother's best friend and his own sort of nemesis, Paul. He goes hard on drugs and alcohol and experience and, of course, leaves a trail of inevitable destruction in his wake. Heartbroken boys, silly men. After a stream of semi-conscious drug and alcohol fueled mishaps of infidelity, he runs from New York in a hire car with hardly any cash left to Little Proud, Ohio, where he meets Wayne Gage, a troubled Vietnam vet and collector of exotic animals. Think Tiger King, lions and tigers and bears. In a bid to make some money to prolong his otherwise failed US trip, Will stays and the story unfolds like a flash-flooding river, fast and furious and entirely compulsive to read. The strange intersection between the performance of masculinity that is softened by the literal tender cuddling of lion cubs is magical and surreal. It's hard to believe these places were real before they were outlawed. Wild Abandon is by stellar award-winning novelist Emily Bateau is a roller coaster ride through end times capitalism, decay, obsession and love. Today I will be playing you my chat with Emily about her latest novel, where we delve into what it was like to follow up her brilliant acclaimed debut, The Strays, with such a different story, the thinking behind that writing and what she's up to next. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hi Emily, welcome to the program. Thanks for chatting with me today. Firstly, how are you? Melbourne's uh, just come out of lockdown and you co-own a brilliant bar, Heart Attack and Vine, as well as a new one in Brunswick West called Shabu Shaba. Is it a relief? It sure is a relief. (laughs) (laughs) It has felt like such a long, long series of lockdowns. I'm sure you feel the same. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I really do miss getting my... uh, my little sandwich before I go to work in the city from um, Heart Attack and Vine, so I can't wait to go and do that again, go and sit there and have a coffee. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to get back into bookshops. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be lovely. Um, I'm going to dive straight into questions here, but it's been several years since your debut novel, The Strays, was released, and I wondered how you approached the writing process for Wild Abandon and whether there were other stories and ideas you wrote and let go along the path to finishing this book. I think not so much that there are other ideas that I let go of, but that it was very, very, this idea was slow to develop. There was a sort of um, initial seed that was a particular true story, a news story that I read in 2011, which is actually when the novel is set, Um, and that was even before The Strays came out. Um, It was when I was still sort of 
polishing the strays, but that uh, I won't kind of go into too much detail about about what that actually was because um, I don't want to give away too much about the novel, but there was something about that that just kind of stuck in my head. So that was there the whole time and I was kind of obsessed with this um, idea, but it wasn't really kind of linked to anything. It was, it was basically... Um, a story about a guy in the US who had a, a collection of exotic animals, uh, a lot of them, um, on his property. And um, I just sort of knew that I wanted to write something about that, uh, but I didn't know how. You know, I, I knew I couldn't kind of write that story from the inside because it was sort of an American story. Uh, and so, it yeah, it took a really long time for all of the different threads of the narrative to kind of come together but um yeah it was just there all the time it it was something about it that just stayed with me so it was kind of good actually finishing one book with the knowledge that there was something I was really eager to get into and sort of work on for the next project but yeah it it took quite a while (laughs) (laughs) well I was I was gonna ask and it's a goofy question but you won the Stellar Award for the Strays in 2015, which explored the bohemian lives of artists in Melbourne in the 1930s. I can imagine that it felt incredible to be recognised in that way, but did it put any pressure at all, on you at all to sort of follow it up or did that not factor in the writing process? Um, I think I did sort of feel pressure to follow up in a timely manner, but then that was kind of never going to happen because um, I'd opened Heart Attack and Vine, the bar I co-own, um, sort of six months after the strays came out and I was just working crazy hours there I was doing like 90 hour weeks for the first year or something um and so I just kind of had to go well I'm not going to be one of those writers that puts out a book every year or every two years um and I think once I sort of came to terms with that um I I don't know that I necessarily felt the pressure from having one the Stella, but I definitely kind of experienced the second book blues. But I think that was more just, you know, the, the pressure I put on myself and also the, the fact that, you know, because I wrote The Strays as part of a creative writing um, PhD, so I had a, a certain sort of structure in place to do that. I had a supervisor that I was meeting with every couple of weeks and it felt like that really kept me on track. And then writing the second book, it felt like sort of having to do it with no structure at all and also with a lot of kind of impediments like the bar that were sort of getting in the way. So that made it hard. Mm. Um, Yeah, and then also I think I just uh, it was a bit of a shock to the system to me, to be honest, how hard it was to just write another book. I sort of thought, oh, yeah, like I will have learnt things from writing one book and the second one will be easier and it really, really wasn't. You know, starting a new project, it felt like going right back to the start and that was kind of a bit horrifying at first. I was just like, oh, my God, this feels just as hard as the first time and I think what I've kind of realised is that it's the start of any project that is very, very difficult and you're just kind of trying to find your way in the dark and... You know, so that was definitely uh, contributing to my second book, Blues. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, just I think the kind of pressure that probably every writer puts on themselves. So I think 
yeah, there was lots of factors that made it hard, but <laughs> I don't know that winning the Stella was up the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, it is such a different story to the Strays. Um, has it been hard sort of having to explain to people that it's not necessarily a historical novel at this stage? It, it's It's very different to that. Has it been hard sort of talking about it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I was actually quite nervous more, uh, to be honest, about whether publishers would resist the fact that I was really changing direction um, because I think, you know, often publishers quite like you to stick with a certain genre or, you know, um, whatever it is that, that you've kind of made your niche in and to go from that historical fiction to something very contemporary and very different in tone and, you know, The Strays was a lot about kind of female friendship and this is a young male protagonist, so it's it's different in a lot of ways. Um, but, yeah, luckily um, publishers kind of seemed to not have an issue with that, so that, that's been really heartening to feel like, you know, as a writer I can kind of continue to explore whatever um, is the next project that is, you know, obsessing me and not not have to kind of stick with any particular thing. Um, and, yeah, so far readers seem to have kind of embraced it as well. I haven't got any feedback so far of why aren't you writing more historical fiction or <laughs> which is good. I loved the book so much. Um and I loved the stray so much and I didn't know what to expect and I finished it going, what an incredible ride. But you know the book better than anyone else. Could you tell us a bit about the story of Wild Abandon? Sure. Um, so Wild Abandon follows the journey of uh, Will, who is a young Australian guy. He's, he's young. He's in his early 20s. He's just gone through his first major heartbreak. Um, he's absolutely devastated by being dumped by the first um, woman that he's ever been really been in love with. And um, he basically kind of just uh, burns his life down and runs off overseas and to the States. And he starts in New York. He hasn't got a lot of money, so he kind of crashes with a guy uh, called Paul who's the best friend of his older brother who um, also kind of lived with his family for a while when they were younger and sort of bullied Will a bit. So Paul is sort of this uh, ambivalent figure of sort of friendship but also kind of has this history of antagonism and um, you know, brings up some stuff for him. Um, and then in New York, he basically kind of goes on a bender. He's just trying desperately to sort of forget his heartbreak. Um, and he sort of makes a vow to say yes to anything that comes his way uh, and proceeds to just, I, I guess, sort of attempt to lose himself in, you know, experience and excess. And then there's so there's the sort of New York section and then um, he leaves New York. He's got this idea he's going to do a kind of American road trip and um, he ends up in a, a small town in Ohio in the Midwest and by a sort of fate or random chance he meets up with a guy called Wayne Gage who is a Vietnam veteran and he's the guy that owns this um, private zoo of over 50 exotic animals like lions, tigers, grizzly bears, 
um, which sort of seems completely outlandish but is actually uh, not completely uncommon or wasn't at that time in Ohio with um, the laws that have actually been changed now. But, um, yeah, that was it was completely legal to own as many exotic animals as you wanted at that point in time. And I'm sure people have um, seen Tiger King now, but <laughs> I started writing this pre-Tiger King. Um, but, yeah, it just it's it gets sort of darker from that point on essentially. Oh, it's incredible. Did you feel when you saw Tiger King a little bit peeved? <laughs> like, oi. At first, yeah, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but um, but then I guess I kind of thought, oh, maybe it'll just sort of set the scene for people because it just did seem like such a, I remember when I first read that story that, you know, sparked it all for me just um, thinking, how is this possible? What is this strange sort of niche world in America of people who collect exotic animals? Um, but I think people have kind of got the background on that a bit now, post-Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Emily, I just wanted to ask you about your protagonist, Will, on his hero's journey, who's full of naive hope and heartbreak and self-consciousness. Can you tell me a bit about how Will, as a character, came about yeah um again I think he came together from a few different threads and ideas um I knew I needed a sort of Australian character um to go to America I I was really interested in writing about the relationship between Australia and America and um but Again, as I sort of said earlier, I knew I couldn't kind of write an American story from an inside perspective and, and I became more and more sort of interested in doing, in fact, the sort of opposite of that um, as in writing about travel and about um, the, you know, the fantasy of travel and the way that a, a place can never really be um you know, match up with the fantasies we have of it or or the kind of distinction between our ideas about what a place is going to be and the reality of that place. Um, and then I guess I started also thinking about that very idea of travel and, and those first overseas trips that we make and what we are looking for in those trips. And Will is kind of, he's very much on a, a kind of classical masculine quest uh he's going out into the world to sort of find experience come back a man um or come back something he wants to kind of come back a cooler person but he's also sort of trying out these different ways of being as I think we often do in those kind of early overseas trips and then I sort of started thinking a lot about you know that kind of masculine quest narrative as well and you know, sort of, I guess, writing a version of that that acknowledges the sort of um, power of that sort of trope in literature, you know, the quest narrative is as old as literature itself, but at the same time kind of writing it with a critical eye because I think, you know, as a, as a young female reader when I was growing up I read a lot of those, those books um, you know, everything from fairy tales where there's the kind of the, the third son going out into the world to seek his fortune and, um, you know, to things like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer to, you know, on the road later, um, some, you know, a lot of those kind of great American novels have that sort of structure as well. And, 
you know, it was something I always felt a bit shut out of as a female writer as well, um, especially with, you know, things like, say, On the Road, which I've kind of very uh, self-consciously put into this novel. It's Will's favourite book. And, you know, I kind of started thinking a lot about, you know, the way that these young male sort of protagonists see the, the world through which they are travelling as the sort of backdrop for their own experience and the people they kind of come across often as bit parts in their overarching narrative and often they kind of leave a, a trail of destruction in their wake and on their sort of quest to find whatever it is that they are looking for, um, experience or, or whatever. Um, so, again, you know, all of that sort of fed into Will um, but then also I think I just was quite interested in kind of writing a, a young male Australian protagonist and, and fleshing him out as a real character as well. And um, I think working in the bar really helped with that because I was working a lot with, you know, young guys um, and, you know, it kind of gave me that opportunity to spend a lot of time with with. 20-year-old dudes that I probably wouldn't <laughs> have got to <laughs> otherwise as a, you know, uh, late 30s woman. Um, yeah, and so I was kind of really just interested in in kind of creating him as a, a real rich character as well as, all, you know, filling him with all of those other kind of more abstract ideas. Absolutely. And there's only, you know, I noticed, you know, when we meet new characters in the novel, we're often treated to a paragraph, and I think this is correct, like I, maybe it didn't happen every time, but I noticed we were treated to a paragraph from that character seeing Will from their perspective um, because he is so introspective and self-conscious. This helps, I think, to better understand like understand him. At an art show in New York, Marcus Marcus's description of Will is particularly gorgeous. He says his face this boy's was wide open, beautiful in the rarest possible way, with no awareness of its own beauty. Was this to help the reader see Will better? Yeah, uh, to see him better and also to sort of recognise that because a lot of the novel, it's not in first person from Will's perspective, but it's very kind of close third person. So even though it's kind of this um, omniscient narrator some of the time a lot of the perspective is kind of Will's perspective and I really uh, enjoyed playing with that sort of sense of closeness to and distance from Will's way of seeing. So there's, you know, there's kind of that sense of kind of zooming in and out from his perspective just within the kind of general prose of the novel but then there's little bits that I've kind of thrown in which I call um, for myself swivels where, you know, we just sort of turn away from Will and suddenly kind of see things from another character's perspective for just, you know, a couple of paragraphs. And, again, they um, the aim with those is to sort of provide this jolt out of that closeness to Will's perspective and suddenly kind of go, oh, you know, either something about Will that, you know, he might not even recognise in himself or um, or else to sort of go the way that we've been seeing things through his eyes or, or very close 
to through his eyes is not the way that everyone sees things. So I think, you know, I was really, because The Strays was a first-person novel and I was interested, I'm, I'm always interested in those issues of perspective and um, subjectivity, I guess, and so it was another way of doing something different um, from what you can do with a first-person perspective using, you know, the close third and then these little jolts out of that as well. Yeah, um, you do, you write self-conscious outsiders so well. People who, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. People who feel shame about their smaller upbringings maybe or their cultural cringe, seeking to know something greater through experience or proximity. I noticed yeah. it in your character, Lily, in The Strays, and I see it in Will. Is there a reason you write characters like this? I mean, there's probably a bit of me in in those characters. Um, I did live in a small town um, growing up, although my dad lived in Melbourne, so I was sort of coming and going between the two and probably feeling um, <clears throat> that difference between the Melbourne life I would have liked to have had and the <laughs> country town that I was kind of wanting to escape. Uh, but also I think I'm, I'm really drawn to that period in, in time in your life where you're just trying to figure out what you know, what you want your life to be and where everything sort of seems wide open and possible and I think it's a really rich sort of time to inhabit um, and both, you know, Will and Lily are kind of those young characters that are trying to, you know, trying to decide who they're going to be, what, you know, what their lives are going to look like, what the options are. Um, you know, meeting people who are totally different from their families of origin and kind of thinking, oh, I could go down that path or I could go down that path. Um, I think it's just sort of a rich um, time to explore through fiction before you kind of pick away and it sort of closes things off. But I guess I must just be really interested in in those questions. I think I'm also someone who tends to kind of think a lot about Ah, uh, what's the point of life? What's the meaning of everything? Um, what you know, I, I kind of wrestle with those big questions, and I guess my um, protagonists are doing the same thing. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, I'm Elsie Lange, filling in for Mel Cranenberg on Backstory today on Triple R, and I'm chatting with Emily Bateau about her latest novel, Wild Abandon. Um, I'm going to change track a little bit here but I wanted to know why you chose to set it in 2011 a decade after 9-11 was it a conscious decision not to set it in the era of Trump because when I think about a character like Wayne the traumatized obsessive Vietnam war veteran with a deep distrust of government he seems like the sort of person Trump might have appealed to in America's Midwest (laughs) (laughs) so why then uh, well, I mean, again, it kind of came out of that initial news story that I read, which was, um, which I read in 2011, happened in 2011. So that was kind of the initial um, reason. And I did sort of start writing it uh, pre-Trump as well. But mm. it, like, it, I guess because it took so long to write, it started to sort of take on different shades for me as well as, you know, the government changed and, you know, when I started writing this story in the Obama era, it was, uh, you know, I was already wanting to write about 
what I sort of saw as this, not to sound too dramatic, but a kind of Rome before the fall moment in the, you know, capitalist West, um, you know, this period of incredible excess that just is obviously completely unsustainable. Um, but then as I kept writing and then when Trump got in, it sort of felt like, oh, this time that I was writing about is this, you know, um, moment of fall or, you know, um, kind of doomed mm. culture um, suddenly seemed almost like a, an innocent time and that really sort of made me pause and think about the whole thing and for a little while I was kind of like, oh, maybe this, this is, you know, irrelevant now because there's such sort of there's bigger things going on but then I, instead of sort of giving up because of that, it, it made me sort of think about, you know, it, the whole period I was writing about in a, in a different way and I sort of started to sow seeds into the narrative of almost that um, feeling that I knew that the reader would have reading it of this time having already passed and knowing what was to come, knowing who the next president was. So that, you know, um, added another dimension to it and I think it, it was hard in a way writing it over that long period but at the same time it made me think about the fact that you know any any book even if I'd put it out before Trump had been elected you know it would have been read through that lens I mean history is constantly evolving and and narratives have to kind of uh, be read through the lens of the present whatever that is so it was kind of interesting in a way writing it over that long period and seeing those changes um, and having to sort of or having the opportunity to kind of inflect the novel with that almost futuristic awareness. Um, yeah. I was speaking to a friend about your the sort of longer sentences and the language in this book, reminding me of those Beat Generation writers like Jack Kerouac who was, of course, mentioned in Wild Abandon as the writer of the paperback that stuffed in Will's belongings. Is it a homage to write, to writers like him? It is definitely in part um, and it's also, I think, you know, my attempt to match the form to the content. So, I, you know, as I mentioned, I was kind of wanting to capture somehow my impression of the, the kind of excesses and the feeling of, you know, this hurtling towards <laughs> potential apocalypse <laughs> that I often feel in the, um, you know, the sunset days of the capitalist West uh, and, you know, to kind of capture that sense of almost too muchness um, in the prose. So I sort of wanted it to feel excessive at times and, and bordering on kind of too much almost for the reader, but then um, I sort of tried to temper that with, quite different sections, like, for example, a lot of dialogue that feels, you know, a lot more kind of slangy and contemporary so that it's not too, you know, overwhelming. But at times I kind of wanted it to feel, you know, a bit overwhelming. Um, yeah, so it's it's that and then also, as you say, that sort of um, homage to those American greats. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the lushness of it, you know, those those sentences are beautiful to read. Um, in the sort of stupor of 
lockdown, there was something very magical about reading something so flourishing, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so it was, and, and a lot of people have said to me it has been the most perfect escape from really oh that's so great yeah yeah because it really is a run you don't know what you're in for so it's it's brilliant I think travel travel novels are pretty uh (laughs) easy to fall into at the moment aren't they it's so so much fun um and I, I wondered are you able to tell us a little bit about the poetry collection you're working on I read a beautiful one called to do in the Saturday paper recently uh yeah um that's another one that's taking me a lot lot longer than I thought it was going to you got a couple of bars going there you can't be too hard (laughs) yeah I do (laughs) yeah and I think um you know I actually really struggle to work on multiple projects at the same time so the poetry is something I've I've written poetry for a really long time and I, I wrote poetry before I started writing fiction so I've got you know probably a good part of the collection but when I was you know deeply immersed in finishing the novel and then doing the edit and stuff like that I just couldn't sort of work on the poetry um but I'm hopeful now that the book's out that I'll be able to get back into it and yeah it it is my kind of first love in a way but writing fictions yeah taken me away from it for big chunks of time so that's the next the next thing I guess Oh, that's so exciting to hear. Emily, thank you so much for chatting. My name is Elsa Lange. I've been chatting to Emily Biteau here on Backstory, filling in for Mel Cranenberg on Triple R. Emily, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It's been really, it's been gorgeous. Thanks so much for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.